Neil had his tonsillectomy this week. I don't know how much pain he's in, but he's in enough pain that he only communicates by text message right now. So, so there's that. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to me? No, I, I, I participated a little bit, but it was really Aaron who did the hard work. Um, yeah. And then, and then uh, Paisley Blue and uh, Allie Grace, new additions to our congregation, whom we have yet to meet. There's a song I really like. It's by uh, Josh Ritter. It's called Girl in the War. And part of it goes like this. Paul said to Peter, they're up in heaven, you got to rock yourself a little harder. Pretend the dove from above is a dragon and your feet are on fire. But I got a girl in the war, Paul. The only thing I know to do is turn up the music and pray that she makes it through. Paul said to Pete, you got to rock yourself a little harder. Pretend the dove from above is a dragon and your feet are on fire. But Paul, I got a girl in the war, and her eyes are like champagne. They sparkle, bubble over, and in the morning, all you got is a rain. Yeah, uh, so Doug and Jen, um, Terrell and Heather, all all new parents, and then also my friend from high school, uh, my best friend from high school, Jared, uh, just on yesterday, uh, his wife gave birth to twins. This is their first children. Um, so it got to talk to him. A lot of new babies. Uh, and, you know, it got me thinking a little bit about what it's like when you, when you first, whoa, there's a baby. Um, and people, you know, people were like, it's going to change your life forever. I didn't have a whole lot of feelings, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't like, ah, I was kind of like, oh, okay. I don't know how that happened, but there it is. Um, and, uh, but as, as, as I got going, I, I started thinking more and more. And I began overthinking. I'm an overthinker. It's all about thinking with me. Uh, you know, my, my heart is locked away, and there's, there's, there's no emotions, just, uh, just a lot of thoughts that go on. And I started thinking about that song. You know, Paul and Peter are up in heaven, and they're looking down, and presumably uh, Peter, you know, we hear in the gospel that he has a mother-in-law, presumably has a wife and children, uh, even though our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters don't agree with that. But we'll just, for the, for the sake of the song, we'll, we'll assume that's the case. And he's looking down, and maybe his wife and maybe his, his daughter are still on earth. And he can't get to them because he's been martyred. And he's watching. And he says, Paul, I got a girl in the war. And there's nothing I can do. And sometimes I think, you know, occasionally I'll travel, you know, I go to Society of Biblical Literature or something and wherever, and, and I'll be gone, right? And, uh, or sometimes Erin will travel, you know, she... Uh, took kids to Washington, D.C. for a week. And there's this separation that happens. And while I'm there, I'm thinking, wow, if anything happens, I'm completely and utterly helpless. I can't do anything for Aaron, or if, you know, I'm away, I can't do anything for the kids. If Alice got hurt, there's nothing I could do. I got a girl in the war. And the only thing I can think to do is turn up the music and pray that she makes it through. It feels like all of us, and it doesn't matter if you've got children or not, all of us have a girl in the war. All of us have a friend or a loved one 
All of us have a child or a grandparent, a cousin, somebody you respect, somebody who's out of your reach. You got a girl in the war. And you can't get there. You can't get to her. This time, she's out on her own. You know, at some point, uh, Alice is going to go to college, or, or I hope, or move out of the house. I mean, I really hope she moves out of the house. College would be great. Um, but she's going to be gone. And I'm going to be thinking, wow. She's out on her own. There's nothing I can do. She's going to be making choices, making mistakes. She's going to be under fire at all times from a culture that tells her that, oh, you need this and that to be happy. You need this and that to feel good and to get rich because that's all there is. This is it. You got nothing else. One life. Uh, the kids in the youth group, they like to, they, it's not cool anymore, but for a while, there was, I think there was a song or something called YOLO. You've heard of this? You only live once. Y-O-L-O, YOLO. So they'd be like, oh, I, that's a terrible idea. It's really stupid. Whatever, YOLO. Let's go do it. You know, and that's, and that's the culture. That's what we, we imbibe. YOLO. You only live once. And I'm going to have a girl in the war. And gosh, sometimes I feel like all I can do is turn up the music and pray that she makes it through. Well, today's story is about a woman who's about to have a baby. A little boy who's going into the war. That's what she realized. She realizes this boy's going into the war. But she's not like me. This woman is tough. See, I, you know, I get depressed. I go up to my room. I sit down. I turn up the music in my headphones, and I just pray, right? Because I, I don't know what else to do. I'm at a loss. I'm weak. But this woman's tough, and she says, I've got a plan. She's going to make sure that her boy takes up arms, that he's prepared. She's determined that he's going to win. Today's story is about Hannah, mother of Samuel, the prophet who anointed the first two kings of Israel. I'm going to have you sit for, uh, normally we stand up, but this, this text is so very long. Um, maybe in the middle of it I'll have you stand up then, but I just, there's been a lot of standing, so you can just, just hold on there. Uh, all right, so this is First Samuel 1. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, uh, you, you can. Uh, I, you'll notice that there's some places in your note sheet that I've bolded because uh, I've altered a few things in the text, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, but here's how it goes. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. Someone else should read that. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children. But Hannah had none. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. If you know that song, God of Angel Armies, that's the, a more literal translation of Lord of hosts. In Shiloh, this is before the temple. Shiloh is a place where in Israel where they worship. There's no Jerusalem yet. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering... He would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, for he loved her, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. She, um, Peninnah, provoked Hannah 
Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better for you than ten sons? Let's arise with Hannah. Everyone stand up and we'll finish the text together. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O God of angel armies, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget her, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord as a Nazarite. All the days of his life, he shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you, woman. And Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I haven't had wine or intoxicating drink, but I poured my soul out to the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, shalom, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You may be seated. Hannah, she has a problem, a problem that many uh, have experienced in this church over the years, the problem of childlessness. Now, I would suggest to you that childlessness is not, in the ancient Near East, the same as childlessness is here. In our culture, honestly, I mean, let's, let's be real, in Aaron, we, we get to think about when we're going to have kids. We can choose. We have IUDs, and we have birth control, and this and that. So when Aaron asks me, Tom, do you think we should have children? My answer is, of course not. This is great. Why would we, why would we ruin what we're doing here with uh, mouths to feed and people who can tape, take up all my attention? Well, that is not the case in the ancient Near East. Uh, in the ancient Near East, um, your, your life is not, um, what? It's not about you having fun all the time. It's about something entirely different. In fact, life in the ancient Near East is hard. It's difficult. So if you want to survive, if you want to make it, you need children. You need children to do your work for you. That was, I actually read a book um, because I was so upset about having children when we first, I was so worried. And the book is called Selfish Reasons to Have Kids. Great book, really fantastic. Obviously written by someone from New York. And, uh, and this guy, he, he, he says, look, the first few years are pretty tough, granted. But let me tell you how awesome it is once they start doing everything for you. All the, you know, all the sweeping, the cleaning of the toilets, uh, the raking, all of it. You don't have to lift a finger. You sit in your chair and you're like, nope, you go do this. Nope, you go do that. No, no. Who's the boss here? And I was thinking about it and I was like, well, this explains my entire childhood. I, I, I had no idea, but it's true. I was, I was virtually a slave from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. every Saturday. No, I'm not kidding you. When I'm telling, this is a, this is a true fact. I can't, look, first off, I'm a nerd, granted, so I already like school. But I cannot tell you how excited I was to go to school in the morning. 
Why? Because I'm free. No more of the drudgery. No more mopping the floors with only the rats to keep me company. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Finally a place where, I, where I'm able to do what I want to do. Well, that's very similar to what they have to do in the ancient Near East. I mean, they're all farmers. Farming apparently is a really tough job, especially if you don't have tractors and whatnot. So if you're going to do it well, you need to have helping hands, someone to share the burden. Not only that, but you know, the ancient Near East is a dangerous place. A lot of times you're not living in a city with walls. A lot of times bandits and rogues can come. You know, they don't have a police force that responds in however long it takes for the police to get to your house in case of a break-in. So they, yeah. so they need somebody to pick up arms and hold the barricade. Who's going to do that? Your kids! You know, you turn 12, it's like, spear in the hand, son, time to, time to man up. It's go time. Yeah, you, turn, you, you, you get to adulthood a lot faster in the ancient Near East than you do here. You expand the tribe. You pass on your name. Someone has to take care of the inheritance. You know, Elkanah, he's a, he's a farmer, and he's got a plot of land. And who's going who's gonna to take it after he's gone? Well, he needs children so that what he does doesn't end with him. That it passes on, that he has a legacy, someone to fulfill it. So having kids isn't about you, primarily, in the ancient Near East, which it's a very shocking thing that we've, we've turned... Uh, you know, childbearing into something about like my personal fulfillment. A fascinating, fascinating thing we've done in our culture. Nevertheless, that's not the case in the ancient Near East. And so y- you can imagine a woman who, who doesn't have kids is not just personally unfulfilled because she has no children to raise, although that's probably very common. She's also an utter outcast. We have, uh, we've got all kinds of texts from the ancient Near East, Egypt, um, Mesopotamia, that talk about the divorce laws, where if your wife does not produce you an heir, you can get rid of her. In fact, bigamy, uh, or multiple wives, that's primarily a practice based on not having a child by your first wife. If you don't have a child by your first wife, well, go get another one. So that you can get all these things taken care of, protect the land, expand the tribe, have your inheritance go somewhere, let your name last. These are all really important things. And if you don't have children, and specifically male children, you can't do any of them. So you can imagine a woman in this culture who does not have children is shamed. Now from what I understand, it's, this, it's a little bit the same in our culture. It's a, it's a sign of, of, of shame for some women if they, if they don't have children. But it's, it's that magnified a thousand times in the ancient Near East. And so Hannah has a problem. She's one of these women. And it gets worse because the other wife can't stand her. I'm not going to give a diatribe on... Um, how the Bible looks at multiple marriages or marriages involving multiple spouses, all I'll say is this. If you're wondering what God thinks about having multiple spouses, just look at all the stories in the Old Testament where there are more than one and see how well they work out. Yeah. I, I sort, of, sort of like a subtle like jab, like, hey, humans, this is a bad idea. Uh, yeah. uh, nevertheless, Penina is making Hannah's life miserable. And what she's saying I mean, think about the things that she's saying. She's not just saying you're not having kids. She's saying things like, oh, who's going to inherit the lands? My boy over here. Who, who defends the tribe at night? These. Mine. You know, who, who is the one who's going to take Elkanah's name? My kids. 
You've got nothing. This is, this, it goes on for, it, it even says, year after year. You can imagine Hannah getting beat down and beat down and feeling more and more worthless to the point that she looks, I mean, it looks like clinical depression, what she's experiencing. I mean, we would look at what she's doing right now in 21st century terms. We say she's depressed. And so what does she do? She prays. She prays, God, please give me a child. And then she prays, as soon, God, as you give me the child, I promise you, I promise you, God, I am going to raise that boy right. I will never let him out of my sight. I will protect him all the days of his life. I'm going to make sure that he's going to be strong, that he's going to protect the tribe, that he's going to... Wait a minute. That's not what she says at all. Hannah's promise to God is a very strange thing. It's a kind of a twist in the story. You imagine, all right, so you're, you're Hannah, and you want a solution to your problems. The, the solution to your problems is a child, right? So that you can raise the child, and the child can be everything that Penny Na says that you're, that you're not, that you don't have. And then things are going to be good, Right? You're asking a gift from God, and presumably if God gives it, you're going to use that gift, and God's going to see that you enjoy it. Not Hannah. Hannah does a very, very, very weird thing. She says, God, if you give me a child, I will give him to you, Yahweh, as a Nazarite all the days of his life. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall come upon his head. And if you read down a little further, you find out that she does indeed dedicate her child. She weans him. That's uh, probably about three years old. They breastfed a lot longer then. Um, mostly because it's safer. You know, they didn't have clean water like we do. So she, she breastfeeds him probably to about three years old. And then she hands him off to, to the, the tabernacle at Shiloh. You know, sees him on feast days and that's it. a strange thing to do. You know, I, I, I prayed, oh, in the fourth grade, I prayed for that, that awesome Lego pirate ship. Yeah, that thing was sweet. Uh, it still, actually, to this day, sits in my, my old room, which is now like a baby room in my parents' house. And you, if you look up on the shelves, you see it's dusted. My mother, bless her, goes in there once a week and dusts that thing, so it still gleams. Um, and you can still see it, but it, it was the prize, the pride and joy of my childhood, my fourth grade uh, Christmas, where the, the gigantic Lego pirate ship was bequeathed to me. I unwrapped the present. It was, oh, this is amazing. So what did I do? Well, naturally, I wrapped it back up. I waited for four months, and then I gave it back to my parents. I said, here you go. Thanks. No, of course not. But that's exactly what Hannah does. She says, God, if you give me this gift, I'm going to be so excited about it, I'm going to wrap it back up and give it to you. What is she doing? Well, I want to suggest to you that first we need to know there's a problem. There's definitely something weird going on here. Because think about all the things that having a child is supposed to solve for her. By giving her son back to the, the, the tabernacle at Shiloh, she, the altar, she, she's losing all of the advantages of having one. All the stuff that Peninnah has been making fun of her for all these years. You know, protect the tribe, take the inheritance, work the land, take the name. All that stuff. None of it. None of it's going to get done. She, she, she has the kid, gives him back. What a strange, bizarre thing to do. Well, there's two probable possibilities. The first is the foxhole promise. Maybe, maybe Hannah is so depressed, so low, that she just loses 
the ability to think at all clearly, and she's just focused on actually just having a kid. And so she gets, you know, she's, she's behind enemy lines, and the bombs are falling, and the machine guns are rattling, and she says, God, if you get me out of this, I promise you I'll go to church every day for the rest of my life. Right? That's the foxhole promise. You, you can't think about any, anything else but surviving, and so you just, rah! And then God says, okay, and then you, you know, keep the promise for a couple of weeks, and then you give up on it, because that's really hard to do. Maybe that's the kind of thing Hannah's doing. I want to suggest to you it's not. I want to suggest to you that Hannah is having a Han Solo turnaround. You've been waiting, I know. You've been waiting, because almost every time I get up there, someone's like, is he going to use Star Wars this week? Is it this week? I mean, he's a dork. So, but I, 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 too. Okay, so Han Solo turnaround. There's also the Andy Sachs turnaround. Andy, Andy Sachs is the uh, character from The Devil Wears Prada. Right? So I want you to think about these two stories. Uh, when you meet Han Solo in uh, the first Star Wars movie, what, he's, a, he's an affable rogue. He, he's focused on money because there's a bounty on his head. And the only thing Han can think about is getting rid of that bounty, getting free from you know, the, the bounty hunters that are coming after him. He needs cash, cold, hard cash. And so what does he do? He takes on this kind of sketchy uh, group, and he goes with them. But the strange thing is, at the end of the story... He's got his money, he's on his way, and then he thinks, is this really what I want? Is it really the 15,000 credits or whatever he gets? Or has, Hans, has Han learned something about the world? Has he changed what he cares about? He realizes that getting away from the bounty hunters isn't that big a deal to him. Actually, he cares about this war that's going on. Actually, he cares about his friends and their survival. He realizes that, that what he thought he wanted just doesn't matter that much anymore. In fact, he wants something a lot more. And so he turns his life around. He becomes others-focused. Andy Sachs, she's just graduated from Brown University. She's in New York, and she's a failure. She has this amazing education, and it's not being used. And she thinks, if only I could be successful, then my life would be better. And lo and behold, she gets an internship at the equivalent of Vogue magazine. And she starts working for this, this tyrant of a woman. But she succeeds. She, she finds herself in, at cocktail parties and moving up in the fashion industry. All the blessings of success are being poured out on her. It looks as though this titan of the industry is about to give to her the, the mantle, pass on the legacy to her. And at that very moment when she's received everything she ever wanted, she realizes, I really miss my fiancé. And I really miss the friends who love me for who I am. And so she says, you can take this job and keep it, and walks away. The one thing she thought that she wanted turns out to be, when she's about to get it, not what she wanted at all. I want to suggest to you that Hannah has a Han Solo, Andy Sachs turnaround. I want to suggest to you that she's looking at life and she's thinking, if only I had a son, then she'd shut up, everything would be fine. And yet somehow, in the midst of her despair, in the midst of her, her crying out, her anguish, her, her pain, she realizes, you know something? What I actually want is different. What I actually want is something else. You see, I think Hannah realizes, I'm in the middle of a war. And if I do have a child, I'm going to be sending him into the war. And I want him to be ready. 
And I think we get this because we look at the text where she gives her son not just to the tabernacle, but she gives her son as a Nazarite. Uh, the Nazarite vow is uh, used a couple places in Scripture. Uh, one here, uh, also Samson. Samson is a Nazarite. And we think probably John the Baptist is as well. When John the Baptist is uh, introduced, he's introduced very much the same way as Samuel. But no razor will come on his head when he's going to be born. And that, by the time of the first century, that was sort of like a code word for a Nazarite vow. So uh, by the time of the first century, the, the language we get about Samuel right here is very much just sort of code language for this very special, very specific kind of vow. Now the Nazarite vow, if you'd like to read about it, it's actually kind of fascinating. It's, it's spelled out in Numbers 6, 1 to 18. Um, but we don't have time, so I, just, I thought I would just go ahead and give you the, 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 the high points of the vow. And then so you can so, sort of get an idea of what it is that Hannah is, you might even say, condemning her son too. All right, now, the Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow has four basic components. One is you never get to cut your hair. You are not allowed to drink wine, alcohol, or anything grape-related. You are never to have contact with the dead. And whenever your vow ends, and we'll talk a moment about that for in Samuel's case, you have to make this monster sacrifice to God where you got to give God, like, a bull, a lamb, um, well, in, in 21st century terms, it would be like you have to come to church and not, you're not tithing that day. You're giving like 70% of your uh, gross for the year. That's, I mean, it's a monster vow. It's, you're really, yeah. So you're not going to cut your hair. You're never going to touch alcohol. You have no contact with the dead. And you got to give up 70-ish percent of your gross for the year at the end of your, uh, your vow. Very strange. Think about that. I mean, you know, first century, uh, or I guess this is earlier, 8th century B.C., uh, 10th century B.C., you know, hair, not cutting your hair. What happens in a what we think of as a primitive culture when you don't take care of your hair? I can't hear that, but lice, right? It gets really nasty. I mean, it I mean, even happens here if we're not careful. I mean, yeah, you're, you're, this isn't... This isn't cool like dreadlocks Rastaman. This is, uh, this is really gross. Uh, yeah, he's, Samuel's going to have a mop, and that mop is going to be a home to many living things. <laughs> uh, so everywhere he goes, people are going to look at him and be like, ooh, gross. Uh, no drinking alcohol. No, uh, no fruit of the vine. Well, in that culture, I mean, number one, it's dangerous because uh, alcohol tends to kill whatever's in your water. So it, it makes it a little more dangerous to, to, to drink. Second, uh, you're not going to be very sociable at all the celebrations because you're not going to have the conviviality that comes from uh, drinking wine. And so you're going to be the dead weight at the party. You're going to be there, and everyone else is, hey, having a great time. And they look, oh, it's Samuel. Seriously, man, that was awesome, funny. And Samuel's going to be like, yeah, I don't get it. He's going to be a real bummer to hang out with not going to be any fun. No contact with the dead. Uh, <laughs> in Numbers, it even says, look, even if your mom and dad die, you don't get to go to the funeral. Even if your brother or sister dies, you will not be at the funeral. You will not be anywhere near a corpse for as long as this vow takes place. So everyone's there honoring 
the patriarch of the family. And they're looking around saying, Elkanah, what an amazing man. He gave us this, he gave us that. And then everyone, there's this, this elephant in the room, namely that Samuel's not there. Samuel's not there to pay his respects, to say his last goodbyes, to give a good word about the man who's passed. And everyone notices, because Samuel is a Nazarite. And a sacrificial gift to God. Well, presumably uh, Samuel would get paid in some way uh, for being, uh, he'll become a priest. But what's he going to be doing with this money? Well, he's going to be saving it all up, saving it up, saving it up, saving it up. And then at the end of his vow, he would be giving it to, back to God. Now, I, I'm, because uh, Nazarite vows were supposed to be for a, a given length of time, and Samuel and John the Baptist both are Nazarites for life, that suggests possibly that what they were doing was they would have like a, an interval where they would go, 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 then they would cut their hair, give their sacrifice, and then start over again. Because otherwise they wouldn't be able to complete all of the uh, parts of the vow. So probably what, you know, maybe Sam is on like a five-year cycle, right? Grow, 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 five years, save up the, all the, the sacrifices, cut the hair, give that, give the sacrifices, and then start over again. So his whole life is a cycle of these Nazaritic vows. What a bizarre thing to do to your son that you wanted so bad. And after she uh, gets, the, after she gets uh, Samuel, um, she has this uh, really beautiful uh, response. It's called Hannah's Song. It's actually picked up by uh, Mary in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And we've actually talked about that before. Uh, but Hannah's Song, she says things like, um, you know, by God, all actions are weighed the, bow, the bows of mighty men are broken. Those who stumble are girded with strength. Uh, those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. The hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. She who has many children has become fetal, feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. God's involved in everything. Every single part of life God is involved in. This, I think, so Hannah's here, here, and she's been tortured by Peninnah for so many years. She can't sleep, she can't eat, she's at the depths of depression, and it suddenly comes to her. This isn't all there is. God's involved in more than this. God's involved in everything. There is a war going on. If you step right back, step back into Judges, the last part of Judges, the last thing that's said in Judges, because Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel, the last thing it says in Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone went their own way. The whole, play, the whole land of Israel is in utter disarray. And Hannah's looking at she's like, my life, this awful, turned upside down, messed up life, is a microcosm of everything that's going on around me in the culture. Everything's wrong. And yet, I, and the reason it's wrong is because we act as if, we live as if, God's not around. God's not doing anything. And she realizes that the depth of her depression, no, God is involved. Everything that happens is from the hand of the creator. God is a part of every aspect of life. And she says, whether I have a son or whether I don't, I am tired, I am sick and tired of people not seeing that there is no secular, there is only sacred, that God is part and parcel of everything that happens in the world. And so when she says, God, you give me a son, I'll make him a Nazarite. Wherever he goes, he will be a living, visible, breathing symbol that you're a part of the world. 
People are going to look at him and he doesn't cut his hair and look perfect. They're going to remember that being fashionable, fitting in, isn't the be-all, end-all of life. Wherever he goes, he's not going to be the life of the party. He's going to be that dragon. They're going to look at him and they're going to say, that's because this, this action of celebration is not the be-all, end-all of life. God is here. God is present. When they, when they bury my husband and Samuel is not there, it will be a reminder that God is the one who gives life. God is the one who takes it away. God is involved. This isn't just physical laws. When he gives everything he makes back to God as a sacrifice, it'll be a reminder that, what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone. Stop living world, Penina, Elkanah, everyone around me as if God isn't there. My son will be assigned to you for the rest of your life that he is. It's so interesting that early on in the story, we're told the Lord, Yahweh, closed her womb. God's involved. Even in this tragedy, God is a part of it. And at some point, Hannah says, I am tired of us pretending like he's not. It's Mother's Day. And I promise you, every single person here has a girl in the war. We, all of us, have somebody who's in the midst of the culture, who's under fire. In fact, we're in the midst of the culture. We're under fire. Outside these walls, it is as if there is no God. And if you don't believe me, watch the Disney Junior Channel for about 10 minutes. And I promise you, you will see a world in which there is no God. You've got a girl in the war. Mothers, you've got a girl in the war. Fathers, you've got a girl in the war. Those of you who have no children. Everybody here has a girl in the war. And what are we going to do to resurrect the way we handle our children, our parents, our loved ones? What does it look like to act as if we've got a girl in the war? Well, on your outline, I have uh, four things. It says parenting resurrected. Now, this doesn't have to be for parenting, although it'll touch on those, but I'd hope, I'd hope it's a bit wider than that, a bit, bit larger. And the first thing for uh, parenting resurrected is practice techniques for intentional parenting. You know, we uh, hosted a parenting conference uh, last October, and it was amazing. It was amazing because, uh, you know, we, we had all these good ideas of things that you can do to be, a, say, a better parent. But what was undergirding all of them was a sense that you need to infuse in your child, and not just children here, friends, parents, grandparents, everybody, infuse in their lives and their interactions with you an idea that God matters, <laughs> right? It's not just Sunday mornings, but throughout the day, throughout your life, God is number one. And that's why every night before we put Alice to sleep, I I say, Alice, may you grow into the wisdom and the compassion and the loyal love of the cross. I want her whole life to be cross-shaped. 
come up with techniques for interacting with people that are intentionally signifying that God is here. God is involved. It's not just nothing. Number two, absorb the secular into the sacred. I remember growing up in this church, uh, Arch, I mean, God bless him. That man had the most pagan taste in films. Uh, if you, seriously, I, you know, I, I, would, I would talk to other Christians, and they'd be like, he did what? Terminator 2. That's rated R. Yeah. I remember, I, to this day, I remember I was in high school, and I mean, <laughs> I took it as sort of license to see whatever I want, which I don't think was the point, but he gets up there and he says, oh yeah, I take my kids to all kinds of awful movies. But here's what I do. Afterwards, we sit down and we talk about the values and the worldview expressed by those movies, and we compare them and contrast them to the values and the, and the, the worldview expressed by Scripture. Yeah, the world says this is, how, this is how things are, and they tell us these amazing stories. They're all very compelling. But we go home and we say, is that really secular? We're going to bring that in and make it sacred. I admit to you, the song that I quoted from at the beginning of the sermon is not a Christian song. But I also submit to you that it is time to bring the culture in and make it sacred by the way we interact with it, with our children, with our friends, and our loved ones. Absorb the world out there and bring it in. Make it sacred. Number three, explain how the secular isn't secular at all. There is no such thing, don't crucify me, as the separation of church and state. We live and act as if there is, but there is nothing that you do, there is no part of your life that is outside of God's creation, God's redemption. Don't live as if there is. Don't live as if there's something that, that's beyond, something outside that, oh, this is what I do here and this is what I do there. My life is cut in half. Or... 10, you know, 20, 20, 80 years, 60, 40. No, the whole thing is God's. Christ, all in all, as the apostle says. And number four, do like Althea Eden and pray. I got back from college. Uh, I was here for the summer. I think it was after my freshman year. And I mean, my father was embarrassed. So embarrassed. I had, you know, a giant orange mane uh, down. It was it was hitting my my scapula, um, and I had I still had my earring, you know. And I came in here with my flip flops and hey, what's up, man? Yeah, I don't care about anything. Like, yeah, you know. And my dad was just a poor guy. He was like, my my dad hated the hippies, so uh, you know, yeah, he couldn't stand them. Um, Air Force man, Vietnam vet. Uh, just could not stand those dirty, dirty hippies. And he looks at his son, he's like, you're everything I despise. <laughs> I'm like, well, thank you. Um, but uh, because I'm me, I was like, yeah, whatever, I don't care what you think, old man. Um, and no one could get through to me, you know. Uh, before I went back to college, um, Althea Eaton, you might remember her, her and Fred, um, longtime members of our church. Uh, in fact, their son uh, started out of this church, um, Grace Church in Sarita, Arizona. Um, Althea Eaton, before we left, she pulled me aside and she, she held my arm and she said, Tom, I just want, I'm sorry. Now, Tom, I just want you to know, from South Carolina, I just want you to know that every night I pray for you at school. 
I mean, you don't, you don't get, uh, you don't get through, you don't get through the war. You don't get through the war unless people are praying for you. Do like Althea Eaton and pray because you got a girl in the war. And for Althea, who's not even in my blood, she looked at me as blood. She was my mom in this church. And she said, I got a girl in the war, Paul. And the only thing I know to do is turn up the music and pray that she makes it through. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we'll be people who, like Hannah, recognize that there's more going on than just our daily bread, than just getting through, getting this, getting that, that instead, God, will see that you're at work in the world, that you have a future plans, that you're a part of everything. And God, as parents and as friends and as loved ones, I pray that we'll be people who model that world that everything we do will bring that world and make it clear to everyone around us that we'll be faithful witnesses, faithful, consistent witnesses to the real reality, the real end. And God, we know we won't do right all the time. We pray that your grace will forgive us, convict us, and then put us back on the track to making everything, everything yours, sacred, Christ all in all. In his name we pray, amen.